Yeah. Just star pickets. Cool. Hey Tim. So, Mr. Alex Rains, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Tim. Thank you for taking the time out of your busy day today to join yeah, me here yes. yet again. What's been going on today? Uh, today's been rather uh, lax. Um, bit of housework. Uh, just went up to the shed and set something up for the lathe to turn later on today. But um, I've just been sleeping in and had a late breakfast and just watching the dogs play behind me and yeah, chilling, chilling a bit. The the wife and daughter are out at the folk festival. So I've got some time for myself. And what is that festival? Uh, it's the Townsville Folk and Acoustic Music Club's uh, annual festival. Uh, it's been running for... 25 years or more, different venues, but uh, um, started up in, I think, Paluma, which is one of the rainforest uh, areas just north of Townsville. There was the Rainforest Festival, and then it, it moved locations a few places, um, but it's been sort of organised by the Townsville Folk and Acoustic Music Club for, yeah, 20-odd years. Um, so they have... A four-day music festival um, with all sorts of different acts from some from around the world, uh, a lot from different parts of Australia. Uh, in you know, in, it's a folk music festival. However, uh, it's there's a lot of uh, sort of mainstream-ish um, music coming into it too. So it's not. Um, all you know morris dances and and irish jigs type thing yeah well uh, what's what's the lodging situation out there are they staying in tents are there cabins what, what's what's the deal oh it's just a, it's a um they hire a space from a cattle property so it's just a big paddock and so people take their tents or their camper trailers um jamie's got a swag so she just rolls out her swag um, Bethany's got a tent. Um, yeah, there's no uh, there's no permanent buildings out there. I think it's all just come set up the camp. Um, they bring out sound stages, you know, big portable toilet blocks and shower blocks for the for the people. And we get hundreds of people camp out there, um, and then yeah, a couple of days they pack it all down and it turns back into cattle property. Do you normally attend or is it not your thing? Uh, I haven't gone for a few years. Um, we went, uh, we actually went there on our, um, well, we timed our honeymoon to coincide with the festival one year uh, when we got married, so 20 odd years ago, uh, and went every year um, for. Um, I think 13, 15 years, but the last few years have just been, I've been over it. Yeah. <laughs> um, we, we used to volunteer and run the bar or run the, um, help run the shop, help run the, um, the gate, um, all sorts of different things. And we are fairly uh, into the club, um, active in the committee and stuff. But yeah, you just sort of burnt out a bit. So I've just had a few years break from it. Um, yeah. But Jamie's, Jamie hasn't missed a festival since she started going to it when it, when it, was, when it moved to uh, just down the road from us. Well, how's work been since we last spoke? Uh, work is steady. Uh, the, well, coming into winter now, so it's, we've dried off. The rain has essentially disappeared for the last six weeks two months we've hardly had a drop uh, which means anything that's not irrigated just dries out and doesn't really grow so uh, yeah the uh, the lawns and stuff still stay green but because it, it gets a bit cooler of a night time here the grass doesn't grow as well 
and uh, you know, short, shorter sunlight hours. We're down to uh, dark by six o'clock and sort of, so we sort of got, yeah, 12, hour, 12 hours of sunlight rather than our a bit longer in the, during the summer. Our, because we're only, um, we're 19 degrees latitude south, so we don't have the wild swings of like the, you know, like you get up in, you know, Alaska and whatnot, where you've got, you know, sun all day or days without sun. We sort of just vary by a couple of hours. But the grass really likes the sun. So when you have low, a bit lower than normal and it's cooler and the, the um, things don't grow as well. But I've got plenty of uh, woody weeds to chop out and other things to do for people. So work hasn't uh, slowed. It's just changed um, what I'm doing on each property. I keep bringing you up as my number one podcast fan in Australia. Um, <laughs> we didn't really talk about it last time because the, the shows, both shows were still relatively young. Uh, what do you think about these programs? Oh, I quite enjoy them. I think they're, yeah, I think they're really good. Um, yeah. They're, you know, they're well made the, obviously the, the river the between the levees, um, riverboat podcast is uh, booming with the 60 odd interviews and everybody who's on that seems to be really excited about sharing their their uh, experiences in the in that industry which is um as someone who's not in the industry it's it makes it seem like it's a, a nice you know be a interesting industry to be in um seems quite a quite attractive actually thinking of um packing up and coming over and been a deckhand for a couple of years <laughs> um but no no i'm really enjoying them um and yeah i used i while i'm out on the mower or the or the chainsaw i listen to the podcasts and it keeps me entertained that's something different from uh true crime and and other things so you know it settles my mind a bit better <laughs> good to hear great um what um what's been one of the most surprising things you've you've learned um from the well from your the between the levees it's very noticeable the the there's a sort of a generational change when you talk to people about what their onboarding was um and up to a certain point their onboarding experience is pretty much get on the boat and do what the other bloke tells you to do to, um, you know, a lot more of the, the uh, uh, safety and um, not indoctrination, the induction type stuff, which yeah, it seems to be the, when I was working, uh, well, when I was at Ag College in the, in the early 90s, you know, we were sort of changing from, you know, just following along and doing things to, getting heavily doing the inductions and getting tickets before you set on, you know, before you got on a tractor or all sorts of things. So it was, it's just interesting to notice that there was the same sort of change um, in the, the, the way uh, workplaces and industries uh, jumped into the, the safety um, things, you know, at a sort of similar time, but what, you know, they, is a very definite change. Well, you said you had a few more stories to share. Um, frame, frame the first one up for me. When was it? What were you up to? Ah, well, see, I've been in the, I've been in my local rural fire brigade, which is was was called Bush Fire Brigades when they first started, um, for about thirty years. Um, I was an officer for about twenty five of them, so we had a lot of. Uh, yeah, I've got a lot of stories from, from bushfires. Uh, where we are here is uh, where we're really a grassy area. Um, we do have trees and forests, but most of our forests aren't super thick. So when fires go through the mountains, they burn the grass that's below the trees rather than 
the like when the forests burn, like in your California and your your northern fires and our southern fires, the whole trees and everything sort of explode into flame and and burn. Whereas where we are, the grass underneath them burns. So it's a bit different. Um, but I've got yeah, 25, 30 years of uh, of stories from from them. A lot of them are very boring. There's some that are that stick in the head. Um, one was the one of the scariest moments I had. I was it was uh, Christmas Eve, and it's got to be 15 years ago now. So um, whatever that is, mid yeah early 2000s, and it was a hot really hot day really dry day the humidity was down below 20 percent um, and one of the a brigade in a neighboring area was doing a control burn on a block of land and the brigade in that area likes to knock off early in the afternoon so they would do all their control burning for people in the mornings uh, unfortunately as the day heats up and the humidity drops down fires become a bit harder to control and that day in particular with the strong winds and and low humidity the fire got out of control and burnt from uh yeah from their patch all the way through to into the into the town uh into the the closest suburb of Stewart, which probably eight to ten kilometers um it a lot of it was burning uh, burning against the um, defence force land, so there was no no structures, not very much in danger except for along the highway where there's some houses. And I was tasked to go and protect a house, and uh, we got we didn't get up to date information regarding the what the weather was, how the weather was changing. The winds were picking up, and the humidity had dropped right down, uh, and so. We went up to one of the only houses that were along the, the path of the fire and did essentially what we do at all the time, which is yeah, you've got a break and we just grab our drip torches, light up um, the grass on the far side of the break and allow, the, we start fires to burn into the oncoming fire to reduce the fuel um, ahead of the fire and means that when the, the fire front hits, it is uh, further away from the structure or the, you know, the road, whatever we're, whether we're trying to protect. Uh, but that day, the weather conditions weren't uh, um, ideal for, for that tactic. Yeah, they weren't ideal for that tactic, um, but we, we didn't get the updated weather information saying it's now... Um, is too low to do that so we did it um, and the fire just came across so fast uh, faster than I've ever seen the fire travel um, it was on the top of a ridge so and the wind was roaring and uh, I had my my crew uh, had the truck backed into the house into the carport and I had gone down the driveway uh, which is a couple hundred meters um, lighting up along the other side of the driveway to create a fire break um, to burn into the fire. I got down to the bottom of the driveway and looked back and just saw the fire racing across the, the top of the hill, um, ignored, it sort of took up the, the fire that I'd lit and just carried it across the, the break, across the house. Um, I just lost everything in just a, a big ball of smoke and flames. And I was sitting there thinking, oh, I've just killed my crew. Um, and then once the wind carried the, the smoke clear, I saw that it actually had burnt around the house. And, you know, we'd gotten there just in time. The, uh, the, my other officer who was in the truck, had, and he's a big lad. He, um, trying to figure it, he's probably close to 300 pound. He was a big, big lad, just kicked the... Um, security door off its hinges, dragged hoses from the truck and hung over the, the verandas um, and put out all the fire as it was sort of going in underneath the house and saved the house. Uh, and that was, that was, a, that was one, one of the ones that stick in my head for 
um, for excitement, um, especially, yeah, with uh, the sort of the danger of everybody else. Um, I mean, it was, it's, it was what we did all the time, but the, the, um, the weather report had come in uh, half an hour to an hour earlier um, and that hadn't been relayed from the firecom office out to the um, to the fire ground. So we were doing things where the weather didn't make them. They weren't they weren't tactics that we should have been using, but that's all we all we had to do. So it was all we knew to do. So anyway, we saved the house and no one died, which was a good thing. But for a, a few minutes there, when everything disappeared into smoke and flame, I was a bit worried. And the, the, the heat from the fire had caught up with me. I'd actually dropped my drip torch um, about halfway down the, the uh, driveway and sprinted probably 50 metres out to a clear bit um, before I was able to turn around and see what was happening. How big are your, uh, your crews for these, these fires? Um, well, we're all volunteers, so uh, it's a matter of who's available. Um, I've turned out to fires by myself, just me in the truck, um, and we've turned out with two people. Uh, three would be three, sort of ideal, um, because you can have one person uh, driving, one person on the hose or on the drip torch, and the other person being able to sort of coordinate um, via radios with other crews. Uh, but there's been plenty of times where you just one truck, two people in it, and you do what you can. It's just your, your tactics um, and your strategy changes to you know, based on the resources you've got. You know, if you had four trucks, you can do a lot more. Um, but, well depending on the terrain, you could do a lot more in some places, but if you've just got you know, two blokes in a truck with a, a drip torch and a hose, then you can do something, but it just might mean that you, you sacrifice another five or 10 acres of land to, to, um, to the fire and you know, have a, a backburn further ahead of the, of the fire front because it will take too long to, to do it. Um, we also did uh, road accident um, rescue type things um, and uh, we've done helicopter rescues up in the local national park because we we're a satellite suburb so we're best part of half an hour away from the, the city so that's where most of the emergency services are, are based um, so when there was an incident of any sort of accident out in our area we would get responded early um, and knowing being locals and knowing the terrain we were sort of the guides for the for the uh the urban rescues when they came out um we'd locate um the injured people or um yeah and guide the uh, to guide the professional firefighters to the area so they could coordinate with the helicopters to get them in and out. Um, done quite a few carrying of people out of um, in odd terrain on stretches. Um, seen a few dead bodies. Seen a drowned person. Um, young girl got caught in a in a hole in the in a waterfall. A few years back, and uh, we'd had a, a cloudburst. Um, we had about four inches of rain in, in less than an hour, which and it was right up in the the top of the mountain, which is the catchment for the the river. And she got her leg caught uh, in a rock or in between a couple of rocks, and uh, couldn't get out. And the river came up and and drowned her. We spent quite a few hours up there trying to. Um, lasso her and trying to get her out of the river um, which didn't happen and we yeah they had to go up for the body recovery the next day and when the river had dropped uh, considerably but uh, that was a bit of a 
that one took a bit out of me. I was the first of our crew on the site. I had to swim across the flooded creek uh, above where the above where she was caught um, to try and get some ropes and things to where she was. And we were given the wrong information by the the caretaker at on at the camping ground and he sent us up the wrong track, which sent us um, yeah, wrong the high side of the river. Uh, and yeah, so I had to scramble down you know, 30 meters of rough sort of almost cliff face full of prickly weeds to swim the swollen creek to then get back to where they were. Um, and there'd been a, a group of people, probably eight or 10 people who were with her, who were holding her out of the water so that she didn't drown. Um, and when we got to the wrong side of the river and we saw them, they were still all in the water. By the time I'd gotten across to the river and then um, across to the right side, the creek had come up higher and had washed uh, washed one of them, one of their legs out from underneath him. And when he slipped, he hit the next fellow and they all, the whole crowd of them got knocked out and washed further down the river. And by the time they regathered their footings and got back to the, the creek and were able to get back to where she was, she'd been underwater for five minutes and the river was a lot higher and uh, she, yeah, so she ended up drowning and I'd got to there just as they got back up to the, to where she, she was. So that was a bit, uh, that was a bit of a, an issue that one. I didn't sleep for about a week afterwards. Um, in fact, the, the very next weekend, uh, a young soldier was uh, fresh in, fresh in Townsville, just got posted to Laverack Barracks and had come out and had gone up to the same swimming hole and on the way back had got himself caught in the same group of rocks that the girl had gotten caught in the week before. Uh, and we got sent up and because we had spent the week chewing over how we would have saved her if we'd got there on time, was able to put that plan into action early for the, um, for the squatty and we, able to pull his leg out of the rock um, with about three or four of us on a group of ropes and we got him out um, yeah got him out before the river took him which was good and I stopped having nightmares after that one which was I think that needed to yeah needed to, to um, needed to work out in my head that we could have saved that girl so if we got there earlier uh, backtracking a little bit to the brush fire you talked about. Yep. That, that kind of got out of, yep. out of hand, bushfire. Yep. Uh, what is a drip torch? What is a fire break? And do you all, do you, uh, you and your team have oxygen tanks for these fires? I mean, what, what do you go out there with? Ah, right. Um, so a drip torch is a five liter canister. Um, with uh, a hollow wand and a wick of like a heavy metal, um, uh, like a baffle that when you the, you put a mixture of diesel and petrol or gasoline um, in the the canister, when you turn the turn the turn the it upside down, the fluid travels down the, the wand, dribbles into the wick, and then you light that. And so you're dribbling um, a, a liquid that's on fire. And so that's a fire bug. And uh, you just walk along or jog along, or if you've got a quad bike or a, if the road's good enough, you can do it with the hanging off the side of the, of the vehicle. And you just essentially just leave a trail of fire behind you. Um, and generally you're lighting off a fire break, which is uh, any clear um, clear patch of earth. We've 
we use we've used cattle pads like the you know, about an eight inch wide um, clear path of earth that the the cattle all traverse on the same thing, and you get a nice clean dusty dirt only road that's you know six or eight inches wide in the middle of a, a paddock that travels for kilometres and depending on the wind you can light off the edge of that uh, but a lot of times a, a graded a graded break uh, you know, a grader will come through ahead and and clear you know four or five foot wide strip of of, uh, of earth and you know, just push the push the rocks and grass out of the road and you can burn off that what is the purpose of that? Is this to divert fire from advancing certain areas or to stop it altogether? What, what, how does that work? Uh, it's, uh, the, it's the method we use is called dry firefighting. Um, we don't, we've got a huge area uh, to look after and most of the fires are far away from any uh, water points. Um, this is a very rural area. There, there might be, you know, six, eight thousand acres of, and you've got to get into parts of it with a, on a on a track. So you can't carry water. You can't carry a huge amount of water. The fire trucks will carry somewhere between seven hundred and fourteen hundred liters of water. Um, so a lot of our firefighting is dry firefighting, which we burn off these brakes, get ahead of the fire and you remove the you remove the fuel from ahead of the fire. So you define the break and say, this is as far as the fire is going and you burn from that and the, it's burning against the wind most of the time and that burns burns back. And so when the main fire hits the the back burn, which is what we, the fire we like to call the back burn because it, it's burning back towards the other fire, um, then all the fuel between there and the fire breaks been removed by the other fire and the fire goes out. So that's the plan anyway. Um, grass fire is a lot easier uh, to do than um, the forest fires because when they get up into the trees, the, the wind will carry leaves and stuff for you know, hundreds and hundreds of metres. Um, we've got a couple of areas that are really scrubby where we can cut a break, burn back from the break and then you watch the wind carry burning embers over the break and a fire starts 200 metres further down and you spend a lot of time chasing um, chasing spot fires. But if it's a really grassy area, then that will generally um, stop the fire. You just burn out all the fuel ahead of it. Uh, and in regards to PPE, we have uh, steel cap boots and depending on your preference uh, we have overalls slightly thicker than sort of mechanics overalls not greatly thicker and they're treated with a chemical uh, that is fire resistant fire retardant um, we all we've got two-piece suits that are a bit heavier material than that they all again they're just fire retardant material um, and we carry smoke masks, just the little sort of material mask that you, like heavy dust masks. Um, and they do issue fiberglass helmets. Uh, however, most of us in the, most of us who've been there for a long time, just wear our Kubras, the, uh, what do you call them, Stetsons, the felt hats. They're uh, really, good for um, insulating and we're out in the sun while we're doing it. And so, you know, a bit of shade as well is, is a good thing. Um, no, we don't carry oxygen masks and, and stuff. The urban fire crews, the paid firemen uh, do. Um, they'll carry uh, their BA, their breathing apparatus, and but they generally only use that in uh, structure fires and or in you know, vehicle fires, if they've got to get really close and, and put you know, put their their foam and stuff all over the vehicle, and they're in the toxic smoke. But yeah, all of us volunteers don't don't have uh, BA. They're starting to get some better or yeah heavier duty smoke masks in in the last year or so, but 
most of us just use the little paper filter ones and they work. Random question unaffiliated with anything we've discussed so far. This is uh, the outback an Americanism or is that the entirety of Australia, a certain region of Australia is, do you, do you all refer to any part of the country as the outback or is it the whole thing? Oh no. The, yeah. We refer to the outback as um, well, I'm on the, I'm on the East coast. So the outback is to the West of us, whereas um, Western Australia would say the outbacks to the East, but most of the, most of the center of Australia, um, apart from the, you know, within a hundred, a couple hundred kilometers of the coast is pretty barren, um, desolate, uh, yeah, desert. Um, so the outback is, yeah, out, anything a couple hundred kilometers sort of west of us is sort of getting into the outback. But I suppose as you get towards the, the central desert and Alice Springs and Uluru and uh, that sort of stuff. That's yeah. It's a it's a a bit um, uh, uh, nebulous and amorphous. The outback is an idea, and you know where you, you could you know if you see a picture, you say hey, that's the outback. But getting to pinpoint exactly where it is on a map, but sort of it's generally all the bits in the middle is the outback. And uh, is uh, well, was Steve Irwin the national treasure we sort of see him as from this end? Uh, yeah, uh, I. I think Steve Irwin was a great bloke. Um, um, a lot of people do. Yeah, he's an icon. Uh, yeah. Some people, there's uh, a bit of a cultural cringe where, you know, some people think Australians should be more than just crikey and running around in khaki and chasing crocodiles. Um, but for those of us who live uh, in the, the, the non-city areas, that's, that's a, I won't say a usual event, but that was it was something we related to. Um, and his his love of the of the the animals and the bush uh, really it, it struck home with with most of us. So I'd say he, apart from the people who think they're trying to think that they're better than they are, um, Steve Irwin was pretty much a yeah a national treasure. Yeah. And how far is uh, his, I guess, his sanctuary or his, is the Australia Zoo is that he was running? Yep. Yep. Australia Zoo. That's down, um, way down the coast from, from me. Uh, probably it'd be 12 hours drive from my place to there. It's down on the Sunshine Coast somewhere. Is it so southwest of you or straight, straight south down the coast? Uh, south down the coast, yeah. It's probably, yeah, it's south, yeah, south, southeast. Um, we've got the, it starts to bulge a bit down towards that way, bulges out to the east. So, yeah. Well, do you have any other stories that come to mind to share about a, a life out there? Well, um, there's, there's a lot of stories uh, that, sorry, I'm just playing with my, trying to get my phone cord to not drain on my leg. Um, a lot of stories from the, our area, the, our little township here, our little suburb, um, when it was developing initially, we had, I don't know how, uh, <laughs> um, oh, I'll tell them to you, you can always edit them out if you think they're a bit gross. Uh, we had a, a, a local dump, which essentially was a pit in a quarry that um, the Shire rented off uh, a local landholder. He had a uh, quarry business. And so the, the town dump was, you took it across the highway, turned off the track and then jumped the railway line and went off into the bush. And um, you would just, you know, throw your rubbish in the, in the pit and come home and, and it wasn't uncommon to then have a bit of a poke around and see if there were things that could be reused. You know? One man's trash is another's treasure, as they say. Um, and a lot back in the mid seventies um, and early eighties, people were, uh, there was a lot of movement out here, people building houses and 
coming into the area. So uh, one of our um, neighbours, well, with it, lived within five kilometres, so she's a neighbour, um, was quite uh, like doing decorating stuff. And one week when they took their, um, their rubbish down to the local tip, she found a whole heap of paint tins sitting to one side. She picked them up and sort of shook them and, oh, yes, you know, there was obviously some, some liquid in there. Some, and so, you know, all these, great, I'll take these paint tins home and, uh, and you know, decorate part of the house with paint of different colours and all sorts of things. And so she takes them home and prepares her bits for painting and then she cracks the lid on the paint tins only to find that uh, obviously some of the people around hadn't uh, dug their toilets yet and they were using the paint tins as their uh, as their night soil um, uh, chamber pots, <laughs> and so she very quickly put the lid back on and drove straight back down to the dump and threw all the paint tins back away. Uh, yeah, quite a find. That was quite a find, yes, and that was that's one of the um, a, a sort of the local legend that got passed around um, between many of us. There was one of our neighbours was a, a great larrikin. Uh, we, uh, he would, when he was sober, he would uh, sit on his front veranda and look across the street to his neighbour. His neighbour would be out in the garden and he'd sit there and just ring on the telephone and she would hear the phone ring and race all the way back to the house. This is five acres of land. Um, so, you know, she might have to run 100 metres back to the house. And just as you'd get to the house, he would hang up and wait for her to come back to the <laughs> halfway out to the garden and then ring again and wait for her to get back to the house and then hang up. And he spent afternoons doing this until um, till she found out. But yeah, that was just you know, simple mischief that people got up to. Uh, a lot of places before, if they didn't have a bore, um, people would pump out of the creek uh, to for their water, their water supply. Uh, we only got town water out here in the mid 2000, uh, yeah, 2005, 2008. Um, so between the late seventies and then you either had the bore or you pumped out of the creek. And there were quite a few instances of people leaving, pulling their pumps out of the creek um, to the very last minute before the floods came through. And uh, quite a there was some interesting moments. People building rafts as the floodwaters are, are rising up, trying to save their save their pumps from the from the river. Um, and last a lot of last minute rescues of of people throwing ropes and and chains everywhere to um, to secure either their bores or to rescue people um, who left it five minutes too late to pull their pump out and had to get pulled out from the from the creek. Um, I'm trying to think now. There's, I can tell you about some of the dead bodies. Uh, we've had. Um, I don't know how what sort of what sort of stories you 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 like. Well, look before there was a bloke, before. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, so there was a bloke around the corner and a couple of years ago who was uh, felling a big tree and. He'd taken you know, everything into consideration, I think, apart from the wind where the tree was going to fall. And when the tree started to fall, his chainsaw got jammed and he ran off and the wind picked up and it swung the tree around and um, it crushed him. We were, uh, we were called out as the brigade to, to help and ended up getting my chainsaw out of the truck and cutting bits and, tree, bits and pieces of tree out of the road to um to retrieve his body um yeah. had a few car accidents where we've had to um find body parts or you know help look for body parts because motorcycles hit a, a truck or something and just turned into red mist um it's all a bit gross um some you maybe maybe you don't want all those stories on your podcasts well um, look back you know 30 years or so uh or even even longer than that 
did you ever find yourself lying to tourists like your wife said all of you people do? Oh, all the time. It is the, um, there was a, a, a quote in a book somewhere that said, God only made American for Australians to take the piss out of. And we live up to that as much as we can. Um, oh, tourists are so, uh, so re- easy to, um, they're so ready to believe anything, anything you say, especially if you say it, you know, in a fair income way and you you know, you, you crank your accent up a bit so they understand that you're, you're fair dinkum. And yeah, uh, you know, the obviously the drop bears are the um, the boogeyman of the Australian bush, the the carnivorous koalas, the drop bears that'll jump out of the trees and drop onto your head and bite you and disembowel you from that. Uh, uh, <laughs> um, well, I think a lot of the, a lot of the Australians' uh, yarns that we scare tourists with are all based on they're based on fact. They're just given a little bit of tweak. I mean, we don't lie. Australians never lie, but we do tell yarns. Um, and I think the difference is that you know, lying is something you do to get uh, an advantage over somebody, whereas spinning a yarn is something that's done purely for entertainment's sake. Um, so, yeah, we yeah, there's quite a few things exaggerated, but um, then there's times when, you know, not like being in the boats and looking outside of the canoe and having a crocodile sort of saunter past or laying on the bank beside you. Um, you know, the meeting large snakes on the roads as we're, you know, wandering down at the night time or, and those sort of things are, are very, um, well, out in the rural areas, they're, they're quite common, but yeah, um, you can always add on an extra couple of meters for the, for the, uh, for the tourists, for the size of the snakes and things. But a lot of times we don't have to, but, um, yeah. All right. I've heard it before on, uh, uh, I've heard it before on YouTube or, or Facebook, something somewhere. Remind me what exactly fair dinkum means. Ah, fair dinkum is, means true. I'm being honest. Absolutely fair dinkum is true. Um, or true dinks is sort of the, the slang, slang of the slang. Yeah, so dinkum is, is yeah, true. Fair dinkum is really true. And then you turn around and spin a yarn with people. Yeah. Well, you spin yarns. we call that being full of shit. But anyway. <laughs> well, yeah, that could be it too. Uh, but we do, we do like to, uh, you know, you've got to enjoy life. And yeah, you've got to, you've got to have a laugh. Have a laugh. Um, I agree. But yeah, I'm um, I'm sure there'll be somebody in in Florida who whose grandfather used to juggle twelve foot alligators or something. You know, I'm sure you've got something similar. You have any good croc stories? Um, well, Jamie would probably have the best ones because she used to feed them. She used to uh, feed them at the Billabong. In fact, when she was doing it, it was only her and Steve Irwin's wife. Only the only two women in Australia who were feeding crocs. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I've seen them in the rivers, been going fishing and um, seen little crocs on the bank. And there's a, a resident uh, freshwater croc who's been in and out of the national park for the last few years. And we've seen him, friends of court baby ones where they hatched the females come up and uh, nested uh, up a sort of a side creek and in, in a dance someone's dam and we've handled little baby ones and stuff but uh, I don't think I'd really want to um, come across the the big salty down in the down in the system because yeah they yeah well I'd like to I'd like to be able to tell the yarn and I think if you come across the really big ones, you don't get the chance to tell the yarn. You've got to have someone else tell it. But we've had 
a few attacks lately, actually. Um, up north, where the up north is um, sort of north of Cairns, where you get into the Daintree River and up onto the Cape, uh, it's least populated than than anywhere else, and big wide tracts of land and um, lots of forest and scrub and stuff. And so the the crocodiles up there tend to be a bit, bit bigger and um, a bit maybe a bit more because they they're not um, you, you don't see them because there's less human interaction with them um, so when there are attacks they're generally sort of up that way and people doing things that they shouldn't be doing like fishing in the fishing in the same spot for two or three days in a row is um, we're always told as kids you didn't do that now, if you went down to the river, if you're camping somewhere for a week, you collect your water at different spots each day. You know, you didn't fish in the same spot each day because once you start doing that, the if there's a crop there, they notice your routine. They'll just crop right where you're right where you normally are, and they uh, yeah. So I haven't been taken by a croc. Otherwise, that would be a marvelous story. In fact, if I was taken by a croc, I'd, it probably wouldn't be a bad way to go because it'd be a very Australian way to go. That'll be bitten by a snake. Yeah. Well, speaking of snakes, have you had any interesting relocations to do lately? Um, since we last spoke, oh, there was a little, yeah, just a little tree snake in the, in a neighbor's garage that um, was freaking everybody out, but just went down and picked it up, showed the, the kids down there that it wasn't dangerous and you know the parents all sort of stand back and the kids go oh can I carry can I play with it and you go well it's your snake you know just put it back in the tree when you're done but uh yeah um but as they say as it's coming into winter uh, they cool you know they cool down a bit and so the snakes don't well they're still around but they're not as around as they are when it's really warm so it's been a bit quiet which is good um yeah. yeah. Speaking of winter, it's it's June tenth uh, right now. It's very much not winter here where I am. Or you're actually mm-hmm. you're June eleventh already. Are are you not? Uh, we're Sunday. Yeah. So it's Sunday sun- the eleventh. Yes. 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 And you also told me earlier. I think it's twenty six degrees Celsius, which comes out to about seventy nine over here. Yeah, it's around about that at the moment. Yeah, that's and- our. Winter's just beginning for you? Yeah, winter starts 1st of June. That's our, um, our seasons. You know, 1st of June, winter, 1st of September, start spring, 1st of December's summer, 1st of March is autumn. So we are into winter. Um, however, we've only had or maybe... Um, maybe six, eight days in the last month where it's been down below 12 degrees at night. Um, most of the, we've had warm nights and the days are always in the mid twenties. It's pretty rare for us to get uh, below 20 during the day. It's a, that's a, um, a noteworthy event because we're still in the tropics and you know, we still get plenty of, the sun's quite hot even though it's winter, uh, but it's the night times that we, that we relish the, the cool. Uh, but we've had, yeah, rarely, rarely have, um, so far this year, rarely anything less than, less than 12. And 12 degrees is an important thing in our house because if it's going to be less than 12 degrees, we get to light the fireplace. So we have a, a little pot belly stove that's been plumbed into the house. Um, it was put in when the house was built. Uh, my, Jamie's mother uh, had the house built and she was a frog. So the, there's a heater in both bathrooms, the big electric bar heaters in the bathrooms and the fireplace because she didn't like getting cold. Um, and if it's going to be less than 12 degrees, we get to light the fire. And it's now 10th of 11th of June and I haven't lit the fire in June yet, I think. It's been a little a couple of times at the end of May when it was a couple of cool nights, but then it's all heated up again. So that's global warming for you. 
Well, do you have anything uh, you would like to ask any of the guests that you have seen that I've had so far? Oh, um, apart from asking for a, a ride down the river on, on one of the tugboats, um, actually Scuffy the Tugboat was one of my favourite little golden books when I was growing up, The Adventures of Scuffy the Tugboat. Um, uh, I, but I wouldn't mind having a chat to um, Colin Bush about his uh, woodworking and his uh, sunken retrieved um, timber that they that he's been working with that sounds a bit interesting just noticed the other day there was uh, uh, a mob trying to get some retrieved timber from the down in Tasmania where the dams they put the big hydro dams in and so that flooded forests and then somebody's trying to get a business going and cutting the timber that's been um, yeah cutting down the, the trees that are under the water um that are yeah which is quite interesting so yeah he's, yeah. Re he's very proud of that stuff he, he um he it seemed to he, he sparked right up when he was talking about his his little wood shop there maybe we can line that up one of these days maybe we can yeah yeah but um as, as you found out the other day that the price of air of air tip travel is uh <laughs> it's a bit high at the moment so um, unless I can hitch a lift on one of those Chinese spy balloons and, and float on over um, just don't shoot me down until we hit the Mississippi and I'll be fine we'll keep that in mind we'll keep that, keep an eye out for you thanks a lot for your time yeah. again sir no no worries I must say the um, it, I read I used to read comics when I was a kid um, mostly Phantom but Archie comics as well, Archie happened to be what the local news agent carried, and some of the the quotes of you know it'll be a cold day in July before things. It's like it's always cold in July. What are you talking about? It took me yeah uh, the the idea that, that it's still you know you know that the other side of the world's wrong way round, but um, yeah the idea that that uh, you know it's, it's hot. And they're having barbecues, and it's like, oh, and they're doing all these things, and like, well, well, they're sitting here in in um, flannelet shirts and and Ugg boots, going, oh, it's it's twelve degrees and it's freezing. Um, but yeah, it's quite it's nice having mates on the other side of the world to to um, to chat to because you you all live very different experiences. Uh, I appreciate um, having a, having a chat to you. Well, thank you again. We'll be in touch. No worries, Timbo. Okay. Talk to you soon. Okay, see you, dude. This has been a production of Where You At Studios, LLC.